Oh yeah, Duncan Green here with the uh, weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm buzzing after spending the day with my students in a series of seminars on our course on um, activism. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, uh, I can't remember what it's like to be that that smart, but you can almost you know hear the synapses firing and the brains kind of absorbing and processing and challenging and uh, we and we just had great fun today. So I'm feeling very good. Even cycling home through the rain couldn't dampen my spirits. I do love teaching and that's one of the best parts of my day or my week. Um, which is not what I can really say for some of the posts this week, which were, although very good posts, I thought, um, pretty depressing because, of course, they were dominated by the war in Ukraine. The war on Ukraine, I should say. Um <clears throat> So the first post of the week was, uh, I couldn't call it links I liked because it was always, I devoted it entirely to Ukraine. So I just called it what to read on Ukraine because I was getting frustrated with the quality of the media coverage, which is all either um, reportage, you know, this building's been hit, this building's been hit, and these people are being uh, are refugees and this is what they say about being refugees, which is all very important and necessary. Um, or moral outrage. Some journalists seem to have completely, you know, lost lost the plot in terms of being journalists and just what they want to do is shout at Russians on Zoom or whatever. Um, and I just wanted to have some bit more analysis. Maybe I'm too cold blooded. But anyway, I put out a call on tweet on Twitter, got a few links, read a few more things. Uh, it's still very, you know, it's still unsatisfying in that it's very northern. There's very few links from the west it's weirdly male uh women apparently don't write about war um uh, or at least not on the um twitter feeds that i follow um and so i i asked for more of those so please do send some in anyway i'll give you a, a selection um i put in a few quotes from each one from well, not each one but from some of them anyway so i started off with chris blackman the danger of demonization uh, if you do not offer a political process to an influential foe you leave them with violence only. War is politics by other means. There's a parallel to this famous advice from Sun Tzu in The Art of War. Build your opponent a golden bridge to retreat. This is relevant today. Twitter, the press, the political speeches are demonising Putin. He is evil to be stopped at all costs. In many ways, I agree. At the same time, in all likelihood, he will remain powerful. Certainly Russia will. The more we demonise Putin the more difficult it will be to find a political settlement that both sides can accept. It will be more difficult to even find a political process. The price paid will be high and it will not be paid by the high-minded. This means walking a difficult line between condemning evil, self-serving acts, but not working ourselves into a lather to the point where we punish diplomats and presidents who find a way to settle with terrible, powerful people. It's an unpleasant thought, but it's a better, but it's better than all the alternatives. So I thought that was very clearly stated. You know, all wars end in negotiations of some kind. And then the second was from a historian, Timothy Schneider, or Snyder, sorry. How to think about war in Ukraine. And he's he's writing about an essay which Putin uh, Putin wrote some years ago. What is striking about Putin's essay is the underlying uncertainty about Russian identity. When you claim that your neighbours are your brothers, you are having an identity crisis. There is a nice German saying about this. Und willst du nicht mein Bruder sein, so schlage ich dir den Schlädel ein. If you won't be my brother, I'll beat your skull in. Nice saying. 
That is Putin's posture. In his essay, when Russia lag, lacks what Russia lacks is a future, and the nation is much more about the future than it is about the past. So that's fairly erudite, but I thought the rest of the essay is worth reading. It was very good. Then always rely on Branko Milanovic to say something interesting. He wrote something called The End of the End of History. What have we learned? The power of oligarchy when it encounters le raison d'etat. This is a very multilingual um, uh, podcast this week. Uh, the, the power of state is limited. We tended to believe that Russia, being an oligarchic capitalist economy, is also one where the rich decisively influence policy. Perhaps that in many everyday that in many everyday decisions that is the case. I do not have in mind here the oligarchs who live in London and New York, but those who live in Moscow and St. Petersburg, who may also be heads of or large shareholders of powerful private and semi-state-owned companies. But when the matters of state are serious for the organised power that is the state, oligarchy is no match. So that raises real question marks about sanctions. You know, if, if the state at these kind of moments basically ignores the oligarchy, who are the ones who are largely going to suffer from the sanctions, it does question whether they're going to be very effective. Did get one Indian source from Siddharth Varadarajan, who's got a phenomenal number of Twitter followers, I noticed. <clears throat> Ten theses on the war in Ukraine and the challenge for India. For a country like India, the situation is genuinely confusing. It has been trying to ride to great powerdom on the premise that its partnership with a powerful yet declining US, which valued India's economic potential and strategic position, would get it there. Partnerships come with a price, but India has so far managed not to sacrifice its special relationship with Russia. Indians' refusal to take a clear position on the conflict in Ukraine suggests New Delhi is hoping it can compensate for the brownie points it has lost with the US and Ukraine by being even more accommodating of American interests in the Indo-Pacific. Not only is this a risky gamble, but the outcome India is hoping for may also prove quite costly. In effect, it will be signing up for greater confrontation with China, in full knowledge that when the chips are down, the US and its allies will be of little concrete assistance. Isn't that fascinating? To see things through the eyes of an Indian strategist, um, the world just looks really different. Then two Eastern Europeans, Jan Smolensky and Jan Dukevich, take issue with those West-splainers, the great phrase, the word they came up with, who argue that the war was triggered by NATO's expansion into countries uh, neighbouring Russia. NATO did not expand into Eastern Europe. Czechia, Poland and Hungary in 1999 and the Baltic countries, among others, in 2004 actively sought membership in the alliance. This is not just semantics, so, that, so they're arguing for the agency, I guess, of Eastern European countries, rather than just being, them just being seen as pawns in the game. Final piece I'll quote, but there are lots of other uh, links in the blog. What is the path for a negotiated peace in Ukraine by Anatole Levin? Historians of the future should condemn Russia very harshly indeed for its invasion of Ukraine. But they will also not forgive the West if we fail to promote a reasonable peace. The voices of those in the West who favour sacrificing innumerable Ukrainian lives to advance other geopolitical ambitions against Russia must be resisted. So that's a bit going back to the same ground covered by uh, Chris Blackman at the beginning. You know, um, the, the, the Golden Bridge, um, not demonising Putin, not using the war to fight other battles at the, at the expense of the Ukrainians. So 
that was some links. I think that there's bound to be a lot more out there. Do send me others. I'd be very, very grateful. Then one of the sort of <clears throat> uh, bits of, I'm not sure if I can use the, the phrase collateral damage, but one of the uh, things that happened, has happened because of the war is that a massive report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change got very little media coverage. Um, and so I had a guest post on Tuesday from Pablo Suarez, who's a friend who who specializes in trying to find new ways to to uh, communicate climate change stories because people just kind of switch off. They go, oh, no, 3000 pages of horror. I'm not going to read that. I'm not even going to think about it. So Pablo tries to find new ways to communicate to keep up the momentum. Yeah, and he does a great job, I think. So I'll just read his introduction. So the, the science of climate change, in, uh, sorry, the science of climate change impacts can be painfully confusing and at times infuriatingly complex to communicate, especially for those of us who need to act and help based on what is known. Last week, the IPCC released Climate Change 2022, Impacts, Adaptation and Vulnerability, a full report with over 3,000 pages of formal technical content with a rigorous summary for policymakers that has been approved by 195 national governments. The IPCC's findings are comprehensive, compelling and very concerning. Now we need to understand and address the re report's implications in language everyone understands. You may recall that we had an earlier FP2P blog on humour and that cartoons have been helping nurture humanitarian learning and dialogue with through serious fun. Well, he's been doing it again. Um, and with, uh, uh, with some IPCC lead authors, we've crafted these eight humanitarian insights and the blog offers, this blog offers a, hold on, I'm just gonna turn off Twitter. Uh, oh, I thought I had, anyway, okay, never mind. Um, <clears throat> we've crafted these eight humanitarian insights derived from the report. So the blog summarizes those um, and adds a selection of cartoons illustrating each one. So I obviously can't talk you through those. And I just released five-minute video on the science of climate impacts presented by Cardboard Theatre, which I can't talk to you about. So the cartoons for each of the eight grim conclusions. It's happening now. It's worse than we thought, etc. Um, and you'll have to read the blog to get those and to see the cartoons. Pablo's conclusion. We need to re-energise humanitarian work in a changing climate. The, chi the science of climate change is unequivocal. No more maybe. It's a fact. It's us. And it's bad. Human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean and land. The IPCC says climate change is a threat to human well-being and planetary health. And it's getting worse fast. The unprecedented is the new normal. This is just the beginning of the era of consequences. Nice phrase. We see that too many of our colleagues can't keep up. Physical, cognitive, emotional and financial exhaustion are creeping into the day-to-day -day life of humanitarian staff, volunteers and partners dealing with rising needs for disaster response, preparedness, risk reduction, and so much more. It's going to get hot. It's going to get too hot, too tough, too fast. So it's time now to re-energize the humanitarian system and become fit for the future. It's time to get ready. That's quite a rallying call. So the next day, um, next blog, we went back to Ukraine. And this is one of my students, back to how amazing my students are, Anna Landre, um, who uh, got in touch and said, look, I'm really sorry, I can't come to the seminar. This was last week um, because I'm working 16 hours a day on 
getting disabled people out of Afghanistan. And then a few days later, Afghanistan, I mean the Ukraine, sorry. A few days later, uh, uh, email drops into my uh, uh, inbox with a really good blog from Anna who just dashed it off while she was doing all these other things. And she's pretty angry about what she's seen. So here we go. As a 23-year-old wheelchair user halfway through a master's degree at the LSE, I didn't expect to spend my past week working 16 hours a day to coordinate evacuations of people with disabilities from war-torn Ukraine. But when I opened social media last Saturday to see Ukrainian disability rights organisation Fight for Right, FFR, begging for assistance with evacuating their community, I quickly got in touch to see how I could help. Within 24 hours, my small US-based disability organisation, the Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies, was on board to do what we could. We expected to jump in for a few days to create connections between FFR and relevant humanitarian organisations we knew, such as the UN, Red Cross, USAID and more, the usual suspects when it comes to situations like the crisis in Ukraine. We certainly weren't equipped to facilitate evacuations from an active conflict zone, when our typical operations include policy making and disability supply deliveries after earthquakes and other natural disasters. But as we made these connections, reaching the highest heights of the who's who of the humanitarian field, we were turned down every time. The typical line was that the organisation lacked the ability to evacuate personnel with those needs. In other words, people with disabilities. How fascinating, read infuriating, given that every single one claims to serve the disability community in their promotional materials and appeals for funding. The reality is that these promises are empty. Instead, we get disabled people who called the hot main, main hotline for a household name medical humanitarian agency being told, oh, we don't help people with disabilities. A lack of evacuation vehicles outfitted for wheelchair users and people who are bedbound. Refugee registration centres, shelters and buses that are not wheelchair accessible. Ukrainian hospitals, orphanages and institutions housing children and adults with disabilities being abandoned. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of the things I've seen. 2.7 million Ukrainians have a documented disability. The real num number is likely much higher. 15% of the world's population has a disability. And we have had these statistics for decades. These are not niche needs. So why hasn't the humanitarian field learned to accommodate them? Are they unwilling? Dominated by so many non-disabled body minds as to be incapable of understanding the needs of anyone else? Fight for Right and the partnership do not have the capacity to do what's necessary to keep Ukrainians with disabilities safe. But we're trying. See the photo? Meet Sergi and Olga, two Ukrainian wheelchair users who just arrived in Germany. We were able to evacuate them from their home, working tirelessly to crowdsource accessible transportation to the border, where we then networked to find Polish disability community contacts that could get them accessible transportation and housing in Poland. The same network is bringing them to Germany, where German dis disability allies have found them housing. Notice a pattern here? The disability community, already under-resourced and struggling, is consistently the only one to step in to help. Another notable pattern is that my team is almost exclusively disabled women, but that's another blog post. This burden of responsibility and work isn't as it should be. The humanitarian field shouldn't work for only 85% of humanity, leaving the other 15% to become acceptable and expected losses. So I think that's great. I actually saw Anna today at the seminar, one of the seminars, 
And she said they've had some fantastic coverage. They got a piece in the New York Times. I think she said Washington Post. And they're hoping to, you know, shame the humanitarian agencies basically into doing a lot more. Um, so props to Hannah, uh, to Anna. Not quite sure she needs to be on my course to learn how to influence. She seems to be pretty damn good at it already. Last post of the week, a step back. So um, <clears throat> I'm a bit weird in that uh, when I go on holiday, I sometimes like to read really heavy books. It's the only time really I've got the uh, brain power and energy to do so. So um, uh, the rest of the time, I'm reading grey literature and blogs and yeah, policy papers and things. So I've just been on holiday uh, in the Canary Islands. Very nice. Thank you for asking. Um, and there I read a really good book about con the history of constitutions. I am just a good time guy, you know. Um, it was Linda Colley's The Gun, The Ship and The Pen. And it's a really great, I love these books with the grand sweep of things, you know, things like um, Jared Diamond, um, Francis Fukuyama, you know, some of these books which really give you a big new world in a, in a, in a few hundred pages, you know. And this is particularly eye-opening for a Brit because without a formal written constitution, we mainly come across it on TV series from the US. Things like West Wing, where you know, people just talk, keep talking about the constitution and you wonder, you know, why are they talking about this? Or if you work in development or in international affairs, you just think, why do people always have these constituent assemblies and why do they spend so much time writing constitutions and then bidding them and writing another one? And, you know, if you work on Latin America, as I have in the in the past, this is going on all the time. There's one going on in Chile right now. So the good thing is that Linda Colley has a lot of the answers to these questions. So what is a constitution? Well, it's a way of imagining or reimagining a country. But it has so many different uses. It can provide proof of modernity to head off the colonialists. So during the decolonization or under colonial, uh, colonialism, a lot of people wrote constitutions to prove that they were modern governments and that you shouldn't you know, go and conquer them. Um, she argues uh, <clears throat> there are a set of guarantees to pacify internal critics, but they can also be a standard to rally opposition to the existing regime. So they're part driver, part mirror of political, economic and social change, infinitely flexible. And that partly explains what their political staying power, you know, people can use them for almost anything. But Colley takes us through the political history of all this from 1750 to the present day. Um, and, and the endless, yeah, the appearance and endless rewriting of constitutions. She argues that they arose as the product of hybrid warfare, where navies and land armies combined uh, in the mid 18th century and produce a much more effective military machine, but a much more expensive one. Um, so that meant that to tax, to raise the tax and recruit the, the young men for this new amped up kind of conflict, government, governments need to boost their legitimacy with the public and with the elites who are paying them, paying a lot of the taxes and constitutions were a crucial way of doing this. It was made much easier because of the, at the same time, there'd been a massive spread of printing presses and mass literacy. So what's striking, yeah, if, you've, if you've grown up just hearing about the US Constitution or Latin American versions, is that actually everybody was at doing this. Monarchs, emperors, tyrants were just as likely as democracies to get stuck in. Catherine the Great of Russia was a huge fan. She used to get up at four or five in the morning for 18 months early in her reign to come up with a proto-constitution called the Nakaz. So Colley situates the US discussion, which is sometimes discussed as if it was unique, as actually part of a global search of interest, uh, interest that include China, India, among others. 
People compared notes, borrowed and, and hawked around their own versions. Everyone was at it, or at least men were. And there's a really interesting chapter asking why women, even women leaders, were largely uninterested in writing constitutions with the notable exception of Catherine. She calls it a new political technology, which I rather liked. Most examples of this technology actually only lasted a few years. The American one is quite an exception. Um, and during the heyday, every nerd and oddball was at it. Um, they, they were kind of like the people writing apps, but they, these were apps for 18th, the 18th century. She's got a lovely account of a, a US constitutionalist who'd come to France and was busily writing a constitution for the French in his Paris lodgings. Not that the French had asked him for one. Suddenly someone knocks on the door, he goes and answers it, and there's a Parisian who's written a constitution for the United States and says, here it is, please adopt it, it will make your world better. At that point, the penny drops and the American realised that maybe everyone should stick to drafting constitutions for places they actually know about. It's very reminiscent of modern day neocons or aid agencies, actually, who think they can just, you know, imp export their ideas to the next country or, you know, uh, the next conflict. So constitutions became a crucial viral medium for discussions of politics and how societies should be run. And they still are, back to Chile. So there's some other random interesting factoids that I learned. The first recognisable constitution emerged not in Washington, but in Corsica, thanks to someone called Pascale Paoli. So put that in your next pub quiz. The first constitution granting women's suffrage was not New Zealand, which is what I thought, but the Pitcairn Islands. OK, 1838, not many voters, but still. And some interesting thoughts from Collie on why the Pacific in particular lent itself to votes for women. And then the one for any Latin Americanist, Simon Bolivar, the great liberator of Latin America, was a big fan of, wait for it, the UK monarchy and the House of Lords. And he wondered if a constitution based on that system might work in liberated Latin America. That's kind of mind-blowing, I have to say. So like Bolivar, many fighters were also writers, beavering, beavering away on draft constitutions in the pauses between battles. And I love it because Collie's just a really good historian. You know, chapters on Pitcairn, Tahiti, another pioneer, Haiti, uh, Tunis, Japan. Phenomenal scope of reading and sources. Um, and yes, Britain gets a chapter on whether or not it has a constitution and why it was never written down. Apparently never a sufficient existential threat to the, you know, to the establishment um, to make them write it down. But she also writes well, evoking the moment. You know, oh, I wish I was Linda Colley. Fantastic. Highly recommended. And on that note, I'm going to go off and pour myself a glass of wine because the weekend has arrived and it's pouring with rain outside. Have a good weekend, everybody. Bye.